Blog Talk Radio. National Association of Adult Survivors of Child Abuse. My name is Victoria Kelly, and I'm your host for this evening. And my co-host is Annie, and we are on scan number 3204. We have a single purpose at NASCA to address issues related to child abuse and trauma, including sexual assault, violence, or physical abuse, emotional traumas, and neglect. We do so with only two goals. One, educating the public, especially as related to helping society, gets over its taboo of discussing childhood sexual abuse, or CSA. Presenting facts showing child abuse to be a pandemic, worldwide problem that affects everyone. Two, offering hope and healing through numerous paths and providing many services to adult survivors of child abuse and information for anyone interested in the many issues involving prevention, intervention, and recovery. Again, we are on scan number 3204. And if you would like to be part of the panel this evening, please call 646-595-2118. And my co-host meets you on the back line and ask if you would like to ask a question or have anything to say. We would love to have you join us and support our guests. Our special guest this evening is um, Jaime Romo. And uh, I don't have uh, a bio, but this is a question and answer call and discussion with our survivor professional, and we use an open mic forum. We feature a survivor professional co-host will field topics brought to the episode by you, the listener. And on these episodes, we welcome various co-hosts, survivor professionals who assist in fielding questions and lead a variety of topics suggested by our call-in participants. Their trauma-informed perspectives as survivor professionals will help them guide discussions on the issues of child abuse, trauma, and healthy human sexuality that springs from questions and topics brought to you, brought to us, I'm sorry, by our listeners. Everyone is invited to engage in tonight's show. Please visit naasca.org, which is the NASCA website. And again, we are on scan number 3204, which means we've got 3,203 shows archived 
Um, and that'll be before tonight. We'll have another one, and uh, you can go on the Blog Talk Radio or on the NASCA website and uh, find the past shows. So um, I want to thank my uh, co-host Annie, and she'll be checking the back line and getting information to see if you want to either ask questions or uh, make comments. So Jaime, uh, would you like to introduce yourself? And thanks for coming on. Really appreciate coming back. You're welcome. Can you hear me okay? Yep, we can hear you. Great. Um, well, I um, appreciate being a part of this group, you know, what some would call a, a movement, a healing movement. Um, and I came into this group after years of uh, feeling the the impact of suppressed abuse and then figuring out for myself um, how to understand you know, how this all happened, uh, the, the behaviors um, that were symptoms or coping mechanisms of, of past uh, trauma. So um, quick summary is that I, I grew up in um, fairly hungry in a violent home, uh, alcoholic father, very violent, um, not very available parents who you know, didn't have, uh, like a lot of parents like me, uh, didn't have a lot of preparation other than their own experience, um, whether that was good or, or you know, harmful. And so I was the, the good kid of six, and so I was pretty much left on my own. Um, school and church became my safe place, and that's where um, the grooming process began with the, the local parish priest, who was really highly esteemed by you know not just that particular church group, but um, within the, the city. And so um, the uh, the sexual abuse from him and one of another diocesan worker for several years uh, in, in 2002. So uh, in between that and 2002, I had a career in education. So I taught, I was a K-12 administrator and then I got my doctorate in educational leadership and was in the teacher ed uh, program at the University of San Diego. And when the Boston clergy abuse um, all it scandal, the story was beginning to be uh, made very public. It triggered my own memories that uh, just flooded me. And so uh, I quickly became very focused on being an advocate, uh, very outspoken uh, towards you know, exposing clergy sexual abuse and you know, all the people who were cheerleaders, uh, either conscious or, or not. Uh, you know, in denial or just kind of ignorant bystanders um, until that was too much. I didn't know how to really slow down and take care of myself. So uh, PTSD did that for me. And uh, that started a new chapter of understanding trauma and whatever form it comes in. Not, not just uh, sexual abuse, although that's a, a, 
has a huge impact. But uh, the world of overwhelming experiences, you know, the, the 1998 ACE study, the adverse childhood experiences, and there's so many ways that um, especially young children can be overwhelmed. And, um, so fast forward to uh, becoming a somewhat of a, a resource, a specialist in trauma and healing. I learned and became a traumatic incident reduction facilitator and now a trainer. And in my current role, it was unexpected. I, my dad was in hospice about seven years ago. And so in that experience, um, I felt very pulled to to take up that role with others of being a companion. Um, so I bring all that background now as a hospice chaplain. It's not particularly religious, and most people are not interested in religion that I work with, uh, but they're definitely looking for meaning and connection and purpose. Um, so um, along the way, I did write a, a workbook that I'm happy to make available to uh, anyone who's interested. I don't think it's on Amazon anymore. So they can contact me through my website, which is just my name, J-A-I-M-E-R-O-M-O.org. Um, and that's a, a short summary of a background, and it mm -hmm. does uh, open up a topic for me, but I'll, I'll take a pause. Okay. Well, I appreciate uh, you introducing yourself, and uh, um, you had mentioned that um, what was the deal before you did the minister? You you gave some initials or something, and I was wondering if you could explain. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. TIR is traumatic incident reduction, and there's a, a website called. Um, so it's under the educational umbrella. It's called traumatic incident reduction. Is um, a way that uh, someone who is not necessarily a therapist can um, hold space and a safe space and uh, facilitate someone else's um, revisiting uh, different, you know, either themes or uh, kind of ongoing situations, relationships, or specific incidents where they have a lot of um, unresolved, call it the charge or, or mm -hmm. traumatic symptoms. And did um, you do that individually or in, in a group setting? That's individual. Although I know that, um, that the next symposium that we have in October, there's going to be discussion of how some of these can be uh, adapted for groups. Um, sometimes for couples right. would be probably a natural starting place. Um, mm -hmm. It's, Yes, but it's primarily for, for individuals because um, even in one individual session, you know, the the person, the client may start with something that they have that they think is, you know, it's on their mind or they, they really want to unpack and resolve, and then something else comes up. And, and in this uh, process, there's no set time limit. Sessions usually can last about 90 minutes, but if something comes up that um, that person even wasn't aware of, then we attend to that. And so if you were in a group setting, it would be impossible to kind of ignore the other people in the group because now this one person is kind of pre presenting a different incident or something that, that needs attention. 
Yeah, I went to a group of people that is associated, and uh, it was very difficult. Um, you know, everybody had their individual therapist too, but um, yeah, I could see that it was very dis- it was very difficult. Um, people didn't want to talk because, well, a lot of times you pick up on what the other person they think. Mm-hmm. They're very sensitive when other people tell their stories, and so everybody was like, you know, they triggered and. From the other yeah, yeah. story, you know, plus, yeah. like you said, they didn't really have time to get into their thing. It was like, okay, next person, you know. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, one of the foundations of healing yeah. is, is safety. So um, it takes a while to, for anybody to feel safe enough to face something more fully with someone else. Um, and right. it's a different role. It's specific training. It's not like just talking to a, a friend who's, you know, caring. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah I, I think the couples thing is really interesting, too, because um, when I was going to, um, I found out I had MPD, or it's known as DID, Dissociative Identity Disorder. Um, my husband at the time, um, they had a group at the Sexual Health Center, and he went to uh, a group or uh, partners that... Uh, were, you know, in a relationship with somebody that was associating, had MDD, and things like that. And it was very helpful, you know, for him to understand. So that helped me, you know. Yeah, there, there are a lot of different uh, tools and with anywhere from what we put into our bodies and how that affects us to the basic, you know, exercise and movement and how we treat our bodies to then working with others in groups and learning from others and then you know, individually. So, I mean, all of it is helpful. It's not just one thing to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Annie, do you have any feedback? Oh, not yet. Thank you. Okay. And then you said you uh, kind of had a topic. Yeah. My yeah. Thanks. Uh, oh, sorry. No. Well, I'm. I'm. My. Include your topic. Um. So let's take what it is, and I think it'll work. Um. So my, I have a, a weird job. Right, I'm a hospice. Move people, patients, for different. And often there's a lot of grief. Um, and today, I don't know if it's your phone or my phone, but, but you're going in and out. Well, yeah, the difficulty is probably for the next 15, 20 minutes, I'll be trying. Um, to, mm-hmm. That happens. Um, yeah. And um, this one person is so impressed with him that after he retired, that he and his wife were foster parents for over a hundred kids, and they're mostly uh, girls. And he shared this one story. Um, that's he was just crying as he was talking about it because he feels so much. He has, he was grieving for them even now that they, uh, 
he found them cutting themselves with like a bottle and cutting their legs, you know, outside the house. And, and he described how he was so upset with them and how he tried to get help, you know, a social worker. And, um, and he didn't know, I'm sure at the time, but I was thinking, oh, of course, you know, when people do that, it's not for getting attention and it's not for being, you know, silly, but um, mm-hmm. when someone's so dissociated, they will do mm-hmm. extreme things to feel mm-hmm. their bodies again, right? to try to regulate, yeah. to get their bodies back. Mm-hmm. And Well, I used, I used to cut and it, um, and it wasn't for that reason, but it was to, um, it was to release feelings that I couldn't identify yeah. and uh, um, kind of get the pain away from my, you know, my feelings that I couldn't identify, <laughs> and, yeah. uh, and and just to, um, you know, just to see that come anatomy was like, uh, I don't know, I just felt like I was releasing all that, all that stuff, yeah. and of course, you know, uh, being able to uh, share that with somebody and not really getting caught, but, you know, I mean, that, yeah. that, that happens too, but, you know, um, being able to share it with somebody, I just want to let the listeners know if that's, that's what's going on with you and you know either one of those reasons whatever that you know um it is common and mm-hmm. uh um you can you know um please be honest with like your therapist or if you're going to the hospital or whatever um because there is help out there and uh i haven't done that for years but it was a very regular thing so i just want people to know that um you know you can get help and there is hope yeah, thank you. Thanks for saying that. Um, and so, what? There's a there's a song, a U2 song, and one of the lines is, um, "There is no end to grief." But then he says, and that's how I know there is no end to love. And um, wow. so this this person, he, I don't think he has kids on, of his own, but he was a foster parent. We have Father's Day coming up, and he was clear that that uh he knew that it it the least he provided a, a safe place for all these people who came in who didn't have safety of course um and so i was thinking about fathers different kinds of wounds that um often come from fathers and then on the other side uh, that there's there's healing of course there's post-traumatic growth. And so as a topic, and I don't know if any of this resonates with yours at all, but the idea of um, linking both grief as well as, as healing with however we saw or experienced fathers, um, whether on the uh, side that was you know, bringing wounds or the side that was source of healing, um, so I'll stop there, and I, I have some examples of my own. But uh, how's that for a topic? Yeah. Well, I my biological father um, sexually abused me from infancy until I escaped when I was 21, um, and I had a six-month-old daughter, and uh, he wanted to take me to Louisiana, marry me, and raise her as our child, and. Uh, he had um, taken pornography me and threatened me with that. And uh, 
I was in so much shame. I wouldn't, didn't want nobody to know what was going on, you know. And uh, when I escaped, I ended up in a better women's shelter. And, you know, I started telling my story and stuff. Well, the women that were in there were better women and they couldn't really relate, you know. And uh, so I ended up going to an incest support group where I got a lot more support and there was a male therapist in there. And every time I'd start talking, he would get up and leave. And this went on for quite a few weeks, you know. And uh, then uh, one time it was my turn, and I said, well, I'm going to start talking, you know, about what I normally do, but can I ask you to stay? And uh, mm. and I'm kind of wondering why you kept why you keep leaving. And he said, well, I thought that would make you more comfortable because you were talking about a man that abused you, you know. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, I'd really like you to stay because... I would like um, um, your opinion, being that you're a man, you know, um, because I had talked to women before, and of course, you know, we got a lot of, you know, connection with that, but I really hadn't talked to any men that I felt were healthy, you mm-hmm. know, and, and to me that was very important because I wanted to get, like, his perspective, and... Uh, because I had heard him talk to other, you know, talk to other people. He didn't leave with anyone else but me. Mm-hmm. And, and I felt really good that I was able to speak up and say that, you know. It wasn't easy. Yeah. You know. Yeah. But um, I had a really hard time because, you know, he had threatened if I ever left him that he would come after me and uh, um, get a house and uh, keep me in the basement. And uh, nobody'd ever know I was there, you know. And and I was scared to death when I left him. Yeah. And he was into S and M and all that stuff. So when mm. I got away, I couldn't put like three words together. And uh, I was shaking all the time, and I couldn't look nobody in the eye. And I w- I was a mess. I couldn't take care of my daughter, you know. And uh, it was really really bad. And I kept going yeah. in and out of the hospital like a revolving door. And uh, you know, I was in one place for people that, you know, had severe mental health issues, and I got locked up in a, psych, or a state hospital and uh, just a whole bunch of stuff. But, you know, I I really wanted to get help, and, uh, you know, I was desperate to get help, and I was, I was scared to death of him. And I had went to live with my, my grandparents, on my first birthday, my mom put us on a train, sent us to Minnesota, and I asked her later on, why did you send us away, you know, like, whatever, didn't you want us, whatever, and she says, no, she says, uh, I felt like you were in danger, you know, I didn't know why, but I just felt that way, and before she passed away, I was able to tell her that, because um, my daughter did hospice for her, the rest of the care, whatever you call it, and uh, so, um, I was able to tell her, you were a good mother, because she was such a bad mother. I said, you were a good mother because you listened to your motherly instincts and you sent your kids away and you did send us away from danger. I can't imagine what it would have been like if he would have had access to me every day. But he kept coming back after me. I knew I was afraid of him, but I didn't know why. You know, and then he'd start abusing me again. And then I, you know, he'd stop or I'd get away, whatever. And and then he come back in my life, and so it was it was really, you know. And then a part of me just like 
again, forgot, and I ended up every Thanksgiving in the psych ward and uh, not knowing what is this about, you know. And then one time I was in there, I started having these memories about Thanksgiving, and uh, it brought so much back, you know. And and I did a lot of mourning for, you know, a childhood that I, n- I never got to have, you know, because really my childhood was stolen. And it wasn't just him, it was, you know, my neighbor, it was a lot of other people, and then my grandparents were alcoholics, so there was a lot of emotional abuse and neglect and things like that. I never really dealt with any of that till you know, I got past a lot of the, the physical and sexual abuse. You know, the, the emotional stuff was a little more hard to comprehend, <laughs> you know. Because, um, cause, you yeah. know, when you're being raped, you can, like, identify that. But, you know, other stuff was going on at, in my home with my grandparents. And it was harder to identify. You know, like, when you get a black guy, you can look in the mirror and go, oh, there's the black guy. You know, when you're feeling like crap and you're depressed and you feel really bad, like, you know, you don't love yourself or you want to hurt yourself, whatever. Um, it, it's... It's hard to figure all that out. So I would really want to suggest to people that you don't have to do it alone. And when I found NASCA, it was like I was in so much shame because I didn't escape till I was 21. I even had a psychiatrist when I was trying to get in the psych ward and I was suicidal say to me, well, you must have enjoyed it or you wouldn't have stayed so long and you wouldn't have kept coming back to him. Mm. And I wouldn't even admit it yet. You know, I was... Part of me was just readily say, you know, I'm out of here because <laughs> I was, yeah. you know, came to admit myself. But I don't know what kept me in that chair, you know, because when I did get in, I, you know, was talking to other, you know, therapists or whatever, you know, professionals in the psych ward that that didn't say those kinds of things. But when I met Bill and uh, was talking to him and stuff, you know. And came on the show, and the first time I went on the show, and there were people on there that were asking me questions and commenting and this and that. And, you know, I got a, rid of a whole bunch of shame, mm-hmm. really. And uh, I just want to invite people, if you're survivors, to go on the NASCA website and get a hold of us. I'm the Minnesota ambassador, and my number's on there, too. And then, of course, Bill Murray is the founder of NASCA, and his number's on there. You know, get a hold of us, and there's a place to sign up. And um, if you'd like to be a guest, and uh, we'll have like a Facebook group. We have peer support groups three times a week. And of course, we have this show, which is two nights a week. And we want to encourage people, you know, to call in and be part of what we call a panel and ask questions and join the conversation. And that number is 646 595 2118. And then one year, I was just like, every year, I was just, on Father's Day, just sick, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, just horrible, and and scared all the time, all the time that he was going to come after me. And mm-hmm. for the first few years, I got away from him, I wouldn't even leave my house. It took a lot, you know, for me to just get out besides for therapy. And mm-hmm. uh, so what I decided to do is I made up all these flyers that he was a predator, and I went and pasted him all over the place he worked. Well, he worked over at um, the Hennepin County Medical Center and was ahead of 
all all the computer information and had access to everybody's psychiatric files, medical files, addresses, phone numbers, um, everything, you know. And I tried to report him to, to them, and they told me the only way that they, you know, that I could report him or whatever is if he had my address and my phone number and knew who, who reported him and, you know, and this and that. I just freaked out. And I told my therapist, I can't come back and see you anymore because he works there. Hmm. And, uh, yeah, and she told me, um, well, she went to the administration and um, she had the adult clinic, but then there were two buildings down she also seen children. And uh, she said, well, I talked to them and you can come see me at the children's clinic or children's office I have which I had MPD, so, like, all my alters who were little kids absolutely loved that. <laughs> the other, other one was, you know, boring. <laughs> and the children's one, she had all these toys, and I had a lot of small alters that were children. I mean, it really did help. But, mm. um, but anyway, so I wrote down, and he was a predator, and went and plastered them all over in bathrooms and all over on... Uh, the the posts all the way around there, you know, predator works here, and hmm. you know, I don't know it. I don't know if it ever did anything. But I went back to the next day. Of course, they were all gone, but it made me feel like I was doing something. I really didn't know what to do because I wasn't involved in anything that was really speaking out about anything. So you know, I like I look back at it now and think I probably didn't do any good, but. Um, it was, I, it's some act, kind of action, and that's why I want to let people know that, that NASCA does do action, you know, education and uh, information. We've got 40 programs, and uh, you can get involved with, you know, with NASCA and stuff um, because a lot of us don't know what to do. You know, we have that, I want to do something to change this so that, you know, maybe somebody else can get help. Um, or prevent it from happening to other children. And uh, so it was, yeah, it was a really big loss um, when I when it just hit me that, that I had really had my childhood stolen. And I went through a lot of grieving for a long, long time. And I still, it comes up, you know, and that was years ago. I've been started therapy when I was 21. I'm 61 now, and I'm still in therapy, you know, because stuff still yeah. comes up. Yeah, well, um, I made just a couple of thoughts. One, this idea of grief, it, you know, we can, we can heal and be more whole and learn and grow from whatever experiences and still feel grief. I mean, still have um, appreciation you know, and compassion for ourselves and for others. And then there's plenty of current things that, that uh, will, are worth grieving. Uh, yeah. But uh, this idea, one, that, that the psychiatrist who, who said that you must have enjoyed this because you stayed, that, that person, uh, that's malpractice. I mean, that person is uh, cruel if, if not, you know, covering for you know, his own uh, discomfort or projections. And yeah. so that, that was really wrong. But uh, yeah. 
so that one that brings up that not all uh you know therapists or people who are out to help uh are good helpers um, and a person needs to have done their their own work to be able to uh, to just to be with just to be a witness or a companion uh for someone else to just to feel and acknowledge all the different things that they need to take care of. Um, well, I had already felt that way. She just kind of reinforced what I already believed. And, mm-hmm. you know, now if anybody said that, yeah, I'd be, you know, uh-huh, may take an action. But at the time, like, you know, I didn't even know it was wrong. And that was years yeah. and years ago. You know, yeah. it took me a long time before I could even tell anybody that somebody said that. But that was the yeah. other thing that, you know, 21 when I, so how do you say that's child abuse when you were, you know, a teenager? The first time I remember he did it was when I was 15. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and like myself or, you know, I should have known better. <laughs> so she was reinforcing that. Well, and the other thing I wanted to, to name was what you did. I mean, part of healing, I think, and where I wanted to highlight in, in me thinking about Father's and Father's Day, you said, you know, holidays bring up or anniversaries of events can bring up, you know, the, the remembrance. And with more time and distance sometimes, yeah, we can see things that we didn't see before and have more perspective and question, you know, was that true that I thought something about myself as a result of that or the world because of that? Um, but you yeah. confronted, you know, you said you put up flyers and so taking action important. So I think acknowledging, acknowledging, recognizing is an important step. I would say step one, mm-hmm. and that may be overwhelming. We may not know exactly what to do. Um, speaking, giving voice and action. Um, mm-hmm. in my case, I did a lot of that. I, I protested outside of churches and diocesan office and I had news conferences and, me and another person, we, at one point, we projected these 40-foot images onto the L.A. Cathedral and the San Diego Cathedral. I mean, it was not an illegal activity. There's no damage, you know, to these buildings. But um, people saw that, and it was basically saying, you take back, you know, this is what's going on that is um, harming so many. And that was kind of therapeutic. It wasn't enough, but it was taking action and... There's so, so many other kinds of actions. So I just want to acknowledge that. Um, but then finding someone who is safe, you know, or a community that is safe enough um, where we can be, you know, held, you know, and just have a sense of safety. Um, and and so whether that's a, in a, a group, a therapeutic group, um, or, you know, there's an axiom. And I, and I would say it's not limited to men, but, you know, it's it's about men. Um, to be a man means to be afraid of other men and mm-hmm. then that men feel in the presence of loving men. And I think that's probably true for women as well. Uh, as far as to heal, you need to be in the presence of loving women, um, mm-hmm. but also loving men. And so you, it was, I wonder about, you know, that person who is saying, you know, I, I leave the room so you won't feel uncomfortable. I'm thinking that person felt uncomfortable and, and I'm right. glad that you asked them to stay so that you could have the experience of here's someone who is safe and someone who yeah. is not going to react, you know. Um, mm-hmm. 
but well, I was I was abused by my mother too, you know, mm. sexually too. So you know, I just didn't trust nobody. <laughs> but um, when I escaped from him because I had um, a child. Uh, basically, they said, you know, you were abused, so you're going to abuse your child. They just, you know, automatically that was just, you know, I was court-ordered to go to therapy group. <laughs> and that was a group that I went to it and was at the government in Minneapolis. I'm grateful that I went to the group um, because it did it did help a lot, you know. But um, especially just knowing that I wasn't alone. Because there were other mm-hmm. survivors there, you know, and mm-hmm. then I started seeing a therapist, and I had an incorrect diagnosis, and so when I got a correct one, I was, I said, yeah, I got MPD, I'm so happy, and they're like, you're happy about having an MPD, I go, yeah, because I was misdiagnosed, and, and mm-hmm. I'm getting help now, you know, at least now, I read a book called MPD from the Inside Out, and everything I read, I went, oh, yeah, okay, that makes sense now. That, yeah, I can, you know, I can relate to that. Whereas the other diagnosis was borderline personality disorder. And basically, you know, I was basically felt like everything I said, they were acting like I was just making it up to get attention. And so I was treated completely different when I went to the psych ward. When I got the correct diagnosis, you know, they would say, well, she's crawling on the floor and hiding under the table before it was to get attention. So they ignored me. And uh, when I got a proper diagnosis, they wrote down, you know, she's in a dissociative state or whatever. And um, they come over and tell me, you know, you're safe and this and that. So, you know, to have the correct diagnosis for me was really, really important. But when they started tagging me with all these labels, um, I focus so much on labels. I didn't really know that I could get healthy, you know, because I'd read the diagnosis and what all the symptoms were, and I felt really stuck. And, uh, I, you know, until I started going and learning about them and going to um, this drop-in center for people with mental health issues and seeing other people, like, you know, had gone through this in in uh, ways they coped with it and just having activities and stuff. Um, you know, some people say, you know, tools, you have tools in your tool belt now or, you know, um, I did a thing for NAMI and I did a presentation and I didn't really like tools, but I did a thing on um, self-advocacy. And uh, so I did jewels in your treasure chest. <laughs> So I made this treasure chest out of cardboard, and then I took out, made these jewels out of colored paper, and I wrote different coping skills on them, you know, because that really helped me to feel like, you know, I could, you know, do something that, you know, there was hope that I didn't have to just be stuck in that, you know, all the, what the label was and all the description of it. So well, I that's one other people. Yeah, that's a, a common thing that people get stuck in the labeling and diagnosing and the symptoms and missing what's behind them and working with those. So you said, you know, years ago, you know, you would cut yourself and yeah. and now you don't do that. So there's something right. that's happened to relieve that, call it need. Uh, uh-huh. 
Yeah, definitely. And, and you know, I was writing about the abuse and stuff, and I was uh, at my grandmother's house because um, I had left my, my husband, whose um, daughter that was, and then that's when my dad came back after me the last time. And when I escaped from him, I went to my grandparents' house. And, you know, um, I was taking parenting classes, and my grandma says, well, why are you going to parenting classes? I said, because I want to be a better parent. And she says, well, I didn't go to parenting classes, and you turned out just fine. And I thought, yeah, just fine. I'm, you know, I'm going going in and out of the psych ward and, you know, all this stuff. And, you know, do you think that's fine? But I was writing uh, poetry, and I even got asked to read one of them at Take Back the Night. Um, and my grandma's like, why are you writing about all that dirty stuff, you know? And and I said it's it's first of all it's not dirty it's my story, and uh, there's other survivors out there that you know need need to hear somebody talk about it because I didn't hear people talk about it. We're talking about 1983-84, and and people aren't weren't talking about it like they are today. Yeah. So but what's really interesting is. Before she passed away, she ended up telling me that she had been abused, and she had right. carried that for those years without ever right. telling anybody. So her initial response was just like being really upset at me, and and it took it took time, but eventually she came to me and told me a situation that you know I would have never known, and she probably would have went to her grave without telling someone. Yeah, and I imagine that was um, allowed her to feel a little bit more at peace, just being mm-hmm. able to oh. to acknowledge that. Mhm. Yeah, because she still, you know, she was still um, blaming herself, you know. And she so was walking in the woods, and somebody attacked her, and of course she was blaming herself for walking in the woods. <laughs> right. So years ago, you said this is in the 80s, years ago people didn't talk about uh, breast cancer, and now, you know, there's dedicated walks and colors and, you know, professional teams wear the ribbons, and and all that is just to take away some of the stigma as if there's something wrong with someone. Yeah, it was interesting because I had breast cancer, and uh, I, I was actually closer to death with the mental health and being suicidal than I was with the breast cancer, even though I was told I was dying. But, you know, um, I was not wanting to live, and just the reaction I got from people with having breast cancer, you know, how are you doing, how's treatment going, you know, is there anything I can help you with? And they call me and this and that. Well, when I was in the psych ward and stuff and going through all that, um, felt like I had to play. And and people really, um, like I said, it was, you know, back away. And uh, I, I just don't think, like you said, the education part of it. People, you know, yeah. now... You know, it's even changed from mental illness to mental health issues, which is right. like, you know, let's really when we look at the stigma, that that changes a lot. 
Yeah. Well, and what is an incredible thing to say, you know, I was more closer to death with, you know, the trauma than I was with cancer. I mean, mm-hmm. that just speaks so powerfully to how so many people are walking around as a, with, with trauma that, you know, no one else knows. Um, yeah. But I think it's one way to describe trauma is, is wounds where there's no blood. It's still there, yeah. it's still toxic, it's still to be fatal if it's not you know, acknowledged. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So I'm curious, you know, what um, were there people who were safe and who were uh, kind of the opposite of what you got as a father that um, that helped as you continue to heal? Because I know there have been for me. Well, I, mean, just, I tried to quit yeah. drinking when I was 17, and I went to AA. You know, and uh, you know these guys would come up to me and say, "Oh, you got a hug." It's you know. And it's healthy. It's just that we hug here and this and that. Well, they grab they grab me and start to hug me, but they start grinding on me, you know. And all I could think of is, you know, I'd rather be out drinking because they do the same thing. At least then I can have a drink. And so I didn't end up back in AA till I was 24. And if anybody came up to me and I could, they looked like they were going to hug me. I just put my hand out in front of me. And, I don't hug. You know, and and like I said, I had been, you know, violated by by my mother, too. So it was just everybody. The only one I really felt safe with is my sponsor, you know. And then, but I was, I was helping out at a better woman's shelter because I'd been in the shelter when I left my son's father. And uh, um, those women were very supportive, you know. And, uh, but the relationships I got in with men, um, you know, telling them that I was a victim and, you know, to me, you know, a lot of women blame themselves and blame other women and say, yeah, I just pick, you know, abusive men. But I think abusive men or abusive women pick us, you know, they can tell that we're vulnerable or, you know, they'll do something. We don't react and just let it go. And, you know, they can pick up on that. They're good at what they do. They've been doing it for a long time. And so I stopped blaming myself, and I think that was a big part of it. But I did end up getting married to a really wonderful guy, and uh, he was very understanding. Matter of fact, I went through six months or more where I couldn't even have him touch me because even if he, like, touched me on the shoulder, I'd feel intense pain, and I'd have to spread flashbacks and body memories and everything else. And um, he was very – and he was the one that went to the support group for – you know, survivors of abuse that that have uh, disassociation and MPD and things like that. So, you know, he was very involved and would go to the hospital and sit there for three hours with me while I sat there and tried to convince an insurance company that, you know, putting me in the hospital was um, a better idea than how much money they were spending and they're trying to, you know, weigh whether or not they should let me in. I think all they were thinking about is the money part of it. And, uh, you know, so he'd sit there like three hours and he'd come and visit me. And when I was in the state hospital, he'd bring my kids every weekend to see me and uh, visit with me. He kept saying, you're coming home. And I kept saying, no, I'm not. You know? <laughs> hmm. And then he went to the hearing with me and they brought up all this stuff, you know, and he says, well, how long ago was that? Well, before she got admitted and he goes, well, how's she doing now? You know, 
And so I was in there. I don't know what it was, six-month commitment. But I got out of there because he advocated for me, you know. And if I was having a panic attack, I don't know. He worked for a job that felt family came first before even your job. And if I was having a panic attack and in the head it was pretty bad, you know, like I was ready to be hospitalized or really, really bad, I'd call him up and I'd just say, I need you to come home. And he would, and I'd sit there, and I would took him 20 minutes to get home. And I'd say, okay, there's one minute that went by, he'll be here in 19 minutes. Okay, another one minute went by, you know, to just, like, get through it until, until he did get home. And uh, um, so that's why I tell people, you know, um, if you can get through a minute at a time, sometimes that's, you know, that's how you got to do it sometimes. And and to keep saying, you know, this is going to pass. And I never thought that it would. I thought that it was going to feel that way the rest of my life. Right. Yeah, well, you know, what a good man. I mean, that was perfect. And this is the kind of mm-hmm. people that I get to interact with. I see sometimes mm-hmm. you know, the spouse is the one who's just so willing to be present and supportive great cost yeah and that's yeah i mean he went to therapy with me you know when they had the you know couples meetings and things like that you know and there, there's a lot of people that won't they're like you know blaming you like um you know you're the one with the problem you're the one that has mental illness and you know and uh you know that 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 is not helpful <laughs> I'm wondering if uh, any of this resonates with uh, Annie. Yes. Yes, it certainly does. Thank you for asking. <clears throat> I uh, I just want to talk about my Father's Day experience for a moment. My my dad was incestuous with me, and I hate him, and he's dead now, and I'm glad. And... Um, so I basically grew up without a father. I I always hated him, and he was really creepy. He was a very creepy person, and so not a very good role model um, of men. And then I unfortunately married people who weren't very supportive, I'll put it that way. Um, and, and I know that it was because that's what I was used to. I was used to not having a good life and not being treated well. And so that's what I ended up with. And now when Father's Day is coming up and I'm thinking of how my son's father and stepfather don't call him, I get angry and I'm angry at my dad. There's more There's more anger than anything else, I think, surrounding Father's Day. I passed. So, are there, I'll say for me, there were some uh, men who were just uh, uh, loving and there was like no uh, question, there was no like looking for something back. And that was, that was really important to know they were safe, to know that I had a, another example of what was possible. Um, I'm wondering... I think if if either of you, I mean, 
I forgot your name. Is it not? Annie not and Victoria. Priscilla. Victoria um, is given an example of like currently the spouse who's just yeah. loving and willing to be there. And right. I wonder if there are others others who have been examples or useful. Well, for the um, for my mom, you know, I was talking to my sponsor. There's a female. And uh, I just adored her. And uh, I said, boy, every time I talk to my mom, I just get sick for three or four days, you know. And she said, you know, you don't have to call her. <laughs> and I thought, you know, I don't. <laughs> you know. And uh, But my grandfather was, um, you know, even though he was an alcoholic, um, he was he was just, um, a very peaceful man. I was, you know, thought I would never marry anybody like him because he wasn't like a macho guy, you know. Um, he was always a peacemaker. And uh, I really didn't uh, understand that when I was growing up, you know. And, uh, but I look back on it and uh, I just, you know, he he would take me places and we'd go fishing and you know, um, it was very involved, build me a playhouse and a sandbox and, you know, just, just a really nice guy. And, uh, that made a big difference, you know, and, uh, I remember one year I made him a pole and, uh, and it had a really nice saying, I don't remember what it was, but it, I counted cross stitched it and I just felt really good about giving it to him, you know. Because uh, he had been such a great influence, and then every time I was in these bad abuse relationships or whatever, my grandparents let me come back there. They always kept my room just the way it was. <laughs> it's almost like they knew I was coming back. <laughs> but, um, yeah. Uh, you know, there was a lot of, I mean, they had a lot of old, old ideas and stuff. But, you know, they grew up in the Depression, and, you know, there was a lot of that. But um, but all in all, you know, they'd say that they loved me. But I think being given up at a year old, um, I had some kind of a thing where I couldn't connect with them. I don't know. But um, like I said, when my mom was dying, too, they had um, somebody that came over, maybe what you're talking about. Um, because, uh, she was having a hard time dealing with it, you know? So, um, when people are, um, dying, I know that, um, Annie and I were sharing, my, my brother died and it was really hard because I was 17 and he was 19 and I couldn't go to his funeral and I kept seeing people that look like him and I, and I think that's him. You know, they lied to me. He really didn't die because he never went to a funeral. You know, um, and he was in Texas and I was in Minnesota. And uh, mm. it was it was really difficult for me. It took me a long time before I came to terms with it, you know. And I know a lot of people, you know, they're like somebody passed away and I was very close. Maybe their parents or, you know, that they were close to or their children or a friend or whatever. And, uh, you know, well, I should be over this by now or they know they're dying, you know, and it's very difficult. And, uh, you know, um, a person hasn't died yet. I think we're talking about that. And, uh, you know, 
that, that loss, like, you know, you're going to pass away soon. Uh, like my grandfather, who was very sick at the very end. And I had a partner that was, two, two partners that were, and, and it's really hard, you know, um, when, when you know that they're going to go soon, especially if you don't feel that you can, you know, help them. Because, you know, you'd like to make everything all better. <laughs> yeah. So this, this brings up, um, and I'm thinking, about Anna, your comment. I mean, whether it's anticipating someone's death, um, the more that, what I see is the more that people, family members and patients fully face that, the more at peace they can be. And similarly, looking back, even, you know, abusive parents, uh, the more we can fully face, and in part that means not just our experience, but but theirs. Um, like with my dad, I could I'd be, I was able towards the end of his life to see where he came from, you know, the kind of, that he had no childhood, that he was basically abandoned, he was exploited, um, you know, he was taken out of school when he was second grade, he had lots of trauma that he had no, like, words for, and, and never talked about, really, until the end of his life, and that, you know, that helped see you know, with a bit more compassion um, and to fully see him, not just fully see my own experience, which is very important as well. So, I mean, I, I hear you, um, Victoria, bringing that, you know, for yourself as well as for others. I'm just appreciating. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah and that was for my grandparents. But um, I like Annie. I mean, when I found out, I, of course, had to be in hiding from him. I even changed my name. Um, I picked this name I have out of a, name book and uh, Victoria means victorious and I kept my middle name which is Ruth which means spirit and Kelly means warrior so victorious spirit warrior and when I took the name I didn't feel that way but I do now <laughs> it was like that's what I want to feel you know and and it kind of gave me hope that I would but um like I said with my sponsor you know um she was older than I was and so I kind of like adopted her as my mom, you know, I mean, I didn't call her that or I didn't even think about it till after she passed away. But, um, you know, she was that motherly figure that, that was, you know, just very loving and very supportive and, um, to a lot of people, not just me. And, uh, she just, she had so much wisdom and, and uh, care and love, you know, and, and I had a real time with the whole guy concept and all that stuff, you know. And so she said, you know, you, you can pick your own higher power. And uh, if you don't have a loving, caring, higher power, you can borrow mine until you find yours. <laughs> you know, it's just things like that. Don't compare your insides to everybody else's outsides. And then she also told me, other people's opinion of you are none of your business. <laughs> But she was an L and on NA, was I. And I mean, whenever I visited her, I could call her. And uh, I don't think I would have stayed sober. I have 36 years of sobriety. And uh, she was my sponsor for 33 years. Wow. And it, well, I, I don't I think I want to ask a question. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, one, I want to uh, say congratulations. Um, and I think the 
the opposite of being abandoned and abused and wrapped in shame is to be present and mm-hmm. to be good to yourself and then to acknowledge right. that and you know, mm-hmm. just acknowledge, yeah, you've got a lot of years behind you. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, because wanted, it was really hard for me yeah. to take care of myself because basically I was told that, you know, if you didn't think of everybody else first, then you're going to hell, <laughs> you know. And and every time, you know, I'm learning to take care of myself when I first started therapy, and it felt so uncomfortable. So I want to let people know that it's it, it might not feel good right away to care of yourself, especially if you're given a whole bunch of negative statements about not, you know, or, or saying something good about myself, you know, I'm prideful and bad and, you know. But I had to learn all that. Yeah. Um, and I wanted to ask again if uh Annie if any of this resonates and, and also I want to ask, you know, you're a person who's helped and continues to help a lot of others. So who have been the people who have been, you know, loving, compassionate, uh and safe for you? Uh, I would have to say in my childhood my grandpa was safe for me. My grandma wasn't. And nobody else, my aunts and uncles, nobody was safe for me. My grandpa was, and he he remained safe for me until the end of his life. He is the only one who really like liked me, and um, so he he's my like role role model for men. But then on the other hand, I know that he was a traditional and um, Middle West man of his time who did nothing except watch TV, read the newspaper, and be fed. Um, I don't really admire that. And so I don't really have an ideal of of uh, how, you know, how a male figure in my life, a supporter figure, would be. I, I do have one person who's a very good friend, and I suppose he's a good example of it um, a lot of his qualities would be the kinds of things I I would I would think would be like fatherly or loving um, but I, I have to say I could count on one hand the people <laughs> the people that I really admire and think are um, good role models for men that's pretty sad, huh? I'm jaded. Well, it's a start, you know. <laughs> and and maybe that's, you know, an area of uh, just spending more time to slow down and, and think about maybe even the small ways. But um but those those are important, you know. When we're overwhelmed it's it's important for us to one stop and Find out kind of what what we need, and and then connect with those, even if they're simple examples of what brings us some sense of connection and in this case, you know, safety. Right. You know, the kind of safety. Anybody yeah. trust anybody after you've been abused is is a very difficult thing. Yeah. Annie, you were going to say, sorry. 
Oh, I was going to say that I I uh, I recently went through a little session of abuse with some friends who were speaking abusively to me, and I don't have a lot of friends. You know, I'm a pretty private person, but I decided to cut them off and not be friends with them anymore because I don't need that. I don't need anybody to tell me what's wrong with me, thank you. Right. We we need to disconnect some things that are toxic and and then find ways. I mean, it's a short-term uh, kind of strategy to, uh, to to disconnect. Then we have to reconnect. Right? So, sounds like you're in between. Yeah, and I'm and I'm actively thinking about where can I find people who are like a good friend, a good friend who's there when you need them and who will talk to you and listen to you. And so I'm thinking about that, where to find the kind of person that I want and um, haven't really figured that out yet. But I think there's probably a group out there, you know, maybe, that I could find people. But I, I have no idea what kind of group would have people who are compassionate and altruistic and, you know, nice. Mm-hmm. Well, sometimes you can find like, uh, you know, um, different groups that that have the same interests. You know, like um, um, some people join like uh, groups that you know people go to like the museums or out to eat together and and things like that. You know, mm-hmm. um, that's a good idea. Stuff, you know, and then maybe not just like put your whole heart out there into somebody, you know, before, I don't know, I I went to this one, going to therapy and they were talking about, it's like two, it's like um, two stairs and like you go up one step and the other person goes up one step and then you go up one step and they go up one step. Kind of like, you know, you share and then you kind of see if they're giving back, you know, obviously nothing's 50-50, but the relationships I was getting in, I was always given, 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 given. Right. And I was right. a whole bunch of negativity back, you know. And I think, yeah. um, you know, just like along the NASCA, you're not going to, you know, connect with a lot of people. But I know you and I have talked, you know, yeah. and uh, I, I get a and lot of, friends. you know, support from you. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. it's... It, the one thing I found out is that when I got rid of the negative people in my life and uh, um, just decided I wasn't going to just, you know, um, accept crumbs, I had more room in my life to actually go out and find friends, like you're saying. Where do I find these friends? You know, you've got that open space now where you can find yes. friends that are going to be, you know, and maybe just realize that you need to just go really slow and kind of feel them out and, you know, like, are they supportive? Are they saying nice things to me? Are they lifting me up? You know, because um, I think a lot of people um, can be really negative in their relationships. And uh, unfortunately, and and I try to find people, be surrounded by people that lift me up rather than tear me down. 
but I was right. used to being tortured right. because that's what I grew up with, you know. And um, yeah. I I broke with my mom, but decided not to have anything to do with her because I didn't want her um, um, being an influence on my children, you know. It was like, right. I, she's toxic. I don't want my kids around her. I don't want my kids to think that, um, you know, that's a good grandma or a good role model. Because it wasn't. You know, she said something to my niece. I can't believe it. My niece was um, um, outstripping. And, and uh, my mom told her, you got a gold mine between your legs. And it's like to say that to your grandchild is just, you know, I just wanted to punch her, slap her or something. I just did not even know what to say or do. You know, Mm -hmm. it was just like I cannot believe that came out of her mouth to her grandchild. And was so grateful I let my kids around her. Yeah. Another thought about, um, you know, where to find these people. I mean, on my part, I created a a group, a men's group some time ago, um, and it was a safe space, not just talk about sports or just superficial, but for people to show up and bring what they were carrying, what they needed to uh, acknowledge in in order to, to be more whole. But recently someone actually uh, wanted to be friends and, and I was cautious and um, we started meeting regularly and I thought there's an expression, if you want to have what you've never had, you've got to do what you've never done. And so this idea of letting, uh, trusting someone else um, who seems to want to spend time um, and Knowing, being open. So, I don't know what what that would look like for you, but that idea of trying something that I haven't done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I found an art group, uh, and um, you know, I've met some people there. I haven't been able to go recently because um, I had some injuries and I've been sick for a while. But you know, I started meeting some people, but you know. Just go over and sit down and talk to them, and, you know, just like, oh, what do you make it, you know, and, oh, I'm working on this, well, oh, that's really interesting, you know, and, oh, what do you make? And, uh, you know, just like you said, you know, you just kind of strike up a conversation, and, um, yeah, it, it, it can be a risk, you know. It can be very risky, especially if you're not used to, um, if you're isolated. Or if you've had bad relationships, trust is, is a very big big issue, especially when the people you should have been able to trust hurts you, like your family members or, you know, somebody that um, was in a community that um, was supposed to be maybe teaching you how to, you know, play baseball or whatever, um, like my neighbor. Um, I knew him, but, you know, he hurt me. And uh, so, you know, these people that everybody else thinks is wonderful, you know, sometimes the one that knows what they're really like is the one that's abusing. 
And uh, so trust can be very, very difficult. But, um, yeah, to put yourself out there. And like I said, you know, sometimes on that meetup, you could find people that, you know, have similar interests. And I know there's, there's like a Twin City meetup. I live in Minneapolis. And, and all they do is they go out and do activities. And, you know, if you're not interested in something, like they go out once in a while to go out and eat and have a couple drinks or something. Well, that doesn't interest me. But, you know, I've been thinking of going out because sometimes they go out to, like, a museum or something, you know. And then um, I do want to bring up NASCA because we have a, a conference coming up. And that's a way to meet some people. Um, they're having a... Um, um, it's called the Script Conference, and I tell people about that. And it's going to be, um, let's see, July 20th and 21st, and it's in uh, Los Angeles, um, California, of course. And uh, they're going to have a bunch of speakers. And uh, there's a lot of people that go to it, and then they have tables where you can go talk to people, you know, Um they have, it's a real kind of laid back kind of conference, you know. Um, and they have a, they have a whole um, bunch of stuff that, so if, if you want to find out, you can go on this website. It's called The, and then Script, which is S-C-R-I-P-T, conference. Um, I want to say it's, um, I, think I, I think it's, uh, yeah, dot com, the, um, the scripts conference dot com, and uh, it's got a whole bunch of information, and you can sign up. And the great thing about it is it's free. <laughs> so mm-hmm. you can get out there. I went last year, and uh, it. Um, I went for Minnesota, so I flew out there. My kids helped me to get out there, and uh, they got me a hotel. I couldn't really afford it because I was only getting hundred for a month. But um, it, the conference doesn't cost anything, and it's, it's two days. So um, people want to know more information. Again, my name is Victoria Kelly, and I'm the Minnesota ambassador. And my name's my my phone number is on the, the website. And we also have like 40 different programs. We also have a um, open. We have a closed Facebook group for survivors, and you can go on there and you know just make put a smiley face or make a little comment or something. And, and that's the way to connect with people. You know, they might not be able to come over to your house and have coffee, but, you know, just. Yeah, thanks for that resource. I'll look it up. Uh, yeah. So with the, uh, with the idea of sharing resources, uh, um, two of the books that I think are really useful, um, so you can get them at a library or audio book, whatever, but, um, the Myth of Normal by Gabor Mate, and then the one called What Happened to You, and it's uh, by Oprah and Dr. Bruce Perry. And both of them are really accessible, and as you were saying earlier, Victoria, once people said, no, this is what's going on with you, it gives people you know, some understanding and I think uh, opens up compassion for ourselves and maybe you know, plenty of others who we didn't quite understand why they were doing what they were doing. Um, to both of those, the, the myth of normal, the Bormate, and what happened to you with Oprah and Bruce Perry. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, another thing that um, that I learned too with um, like communicating with people, um, there they had like when I was in the um, psych ward, they had uh, a handout that they gave us, and the first column was um, if you were passive. The second one was assertive, and the third was aggressive, and we had to figure out which one we went in. Well, I was certainly passive. You know, I couldn't talk to nobody. I couldn't look them in the eye or whatever. But um, like you said, by taking risks, you know, um, just starting to talk to somebody, even just, you know, going in the store and saying hi to the cashier or, you know, yeah, how you doing? Just have a nice day or, you know, just just little steps. Um, you know, when you're real isolated and stuff and you don't talk to anybody or go out and do anything, it's not, you know, it can, it can be difficult to um, communicate with people. And uh, even when I started being assertive, you know, setting up for myself, of course they said, uh, you know, they were telling me, well, you have to put, um, um, you have to, um, you know, like protect yourself and, and uh, uh, set boundaries. And they go, oh, boundaries. And I started to describe what I thought boundaries were. And they go, no, those are walls. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I don't let nobody in. <laughs> My boundary. <laughs> no, no, those are walls. That's funny. And, uh, yeah. But when I was assertive, you know, like, I don't appreciate you talking to me like that. Or, you know, I wish you could be supportive or whatever. Um, when I started doing that, my family and friends were like, uh, why are you acting that way? And I said, well, because I'm learning how to, you know, be assertive and take care of myself. And they said, well, we don't like this you. <laughs> Go back to the way you were. You know, because they couldn't take, you know, they couldn't take advantage of me. <laughs> you know, and, and that gave me even more power to continue to do what I was doing. <laughs> I realized that, you know, I didn't have to get rid of these people. They got rid of me. <laughs> you know, they moved on to people they could, you know, control, manipulate, and treat like crap. And I just decided that I didn't want to be in relationships with those kind of people. But I was, you know, I was lonely for a long time. And there's really a difference between being alone and being lonely. And I, I didn't really understand that, you know. And now I enjoy alone time, but I also enjoy being with people. And so, you know, I go to AA, I go to Al-Anon, Adult Children of Alcoholics. And and there's a lot of other, like I said, social types of groups on on uh, Meetup or um, I think Facebook too. You know, even just going, um, you know, a few people will go on and maybe go to a concert or something and contacting somebody that seems to post a lot, whatever, and just say, hey, I'm going to this, you know, maybe we can meet up at that event, you know, and uh, make sure you got your own vehicle so you can, you know, <laughs> if you want to go home, you go home, <laughs> you know. Um, there's just, there's just uh, try some new things and uh, just be gentle with yourself that, you know, Things don't change overnight. You take, gotta take tiny steps. Even babies, they crawl before they walk. You know. Well, this is a, a metaphor. I started out driving, 
and then I picked up my daughter who drove us to the airport. That's where I am now. And the metaphor is that, you know, we're all, you know, we're all in this like journey in this process. And it's hard sometimes to see that we're making progress. Um, you may feel stuck. Um, the reality is that there's always change. I mean, that's, again, you know, I have a weird job and I, I meet with people who are grieving, who are going through incredible changes and they find kind of peace in the middle of their turbulence um, when they appreciate that um, that there's more love than there is grief, that they have, um, that there is, that this too shall pass. I mean, that was a whole reflection the other day with one of one of my patients. Um, you know, to me, those, those, there's a Zen uh, koan. It says, uh, everything is connected. Everything changes. Pay attention. And, and I think looking back at, you know, the, the wounds, the trauma, um, that those were certainly connected with the ways that I coped and things that, you know, helped me to have some level of achievement and so on. And then um, certainly to the things that were not helpful. And and now, you know, just looking back to see you know, the, the insider growth that I have and the more that I have to do, um, that all that is to do with change. Well, that's, um, and that uh, I know, and, and maybe you do too, you know, what it's like to to be at what feels like bottom. And, and it's because of that, back to that song, I don't think it's just a corny, you know, silly cliche. You know, there's no end to grief. That's how I know there's no end to love. So I just offer that to say I'm, I'm with you. And anyone who might be uh, listening, say, so, yeah. There is definitely growth. There's definitely hope. Also, we have, um, like I said, we have the peer support group. And you can connect, connect with people there, too. And it's Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Sundays. And uh, you can find the times we just switched the Tuesday group, and I'm the facilitator for that. And it's uh, 4 o'clock on Tuesdays, and that's central time, so you gotta you got to do the math yourself <laughs> where you're at um, on the time zones. But... Um, that I facilitate that, and um, you get to know people on that too, just just like the Facebook closed group, you know, and uh, just like uh, any any group, you know, you wanna you wanna take care of yourself and not like you know give a ton of information, um, but you can connect with people that way, and uh, I know I've met a lot of people and maybe just message them and. Hello, how are you doing? You know, I really appreciate what you said on Facebook or the group or whatever. <clears throat> but just take it slow and, you know, um, you're not going to make, like, you know, a really good friend overnight. You know, it takes time to get to know somebody and to be able to trust them. So, you know, it, it uh, um, there, there's no timeline where, you know, um, geez, I need to get a friend right now. Because um, I think uh, a lot of people get desperate. At least I did. I got desperate. and um, Trusted people. Um, 
too quickly and uh, got taken advantage of a lot. So now people really have to earn my trust. Yeah, I'm glad you said that. I mean, I that I echo that experience of you know wanting so much um, to be with something positive that when someone presented like a, a chance to work together, to collaborate, to create something, I got ripped off. You know, people people use me. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's important to have not walls as boundaries, but permeable, right? But that takes some practice. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're getting close to the end, and uh, you want to give uh, your website again and then um, a way to contact you or mm-hmm. whatever, but um, spell that really slow because I'm looking right that fast. <laughs> yeah. Um, the website is uh, J-A-I-M-E-R-O-M-O dot O-R-G. And I need to update it, but it does have a few resources um, I don't have a, a schedule for the next uh, traumatic incident reduction training, but mm-hmm. um, imagine that that may be in the next three or four months. Um, mm-hmm. And with that, yeah, you can connect, uh, send me an email. Be happy to be in touch. Um, if anybody could use the the workbook, it's called Healing the Sexually Abused Heart, a workbook for survivors, thrivers, and supporters, and it's at no cost, um, but I just, you know, have copies that I'm certainly not using, I'd be happy to to share, and, you know, that's a combination of some of my own uh, experience, you know, learning through experience, as well as, um, you know, other models of, of development and, and healing, and, you know, in retrospect, I think it, it lines up well with the uh, kind of more trauma-informed writing, even though I didn't have that language at the time. Um, And even though that was focused around religious authority, sexual abuse, that's a very kind of narrow group, but the the dynamics uh, are very common. Um, And I also want people to know that um, on the website we have we do have resources, and if you go to your state, um, you can click on there, and there is support groups in uh, all the areas, and we've got a bunch all over the world. And if you find out that you know one of the say support groups isn't um, active, or one of the resources isn't active, let us know so that we can get it off the website. Or if you know of any any other sort groups, um, and that might be a way, Annie, as well, to meet some other people, um, to go on that, um, that link for um, that. And then um, we also have things that, like, are happening everywhere, for instance, the conference. Um, so we have a calendar of events as well as uh, the resources. And uh, like I said, you can just go to your state, and click on it, and, and it goes by city. And uh, I just want to let people know about that. And then I also, uh, before we end, I like to say the, the NASA serenity prayer. And it's the, please grant me the serenity to stop hitting myself up for not doing things perfectly. The courage 
to forgive myself because I always try my best and the wisdom to know that I am a good person with a kind heart. And uh, to me, that's really important because uh, it, being gentle with yourself, you know, and loving and caring to yourself. And uh, and that is, you know, what we learn from other people is, uh, you know, to have people be kind to us. And, um, and I just always try to, um, you know, uh, say nice things to people because I, you never know where they're coming from either. You never know what kind of pain they're carrying. And that's like my sponsor said, you know, um, you don't, don't compare your insects to everybody else with outsides because you don't know what they're going through. You know, they might look all put together, but, um, you know, almost everybody has suffered some kind of pain and dealing with something that's difficult in their lives. And uh, we all react differently to that. So I just want to um, thank Annie for being my co-host and, uh, and our guest. And uh, um, we've only got a minute here left or less than that. So um, as Bill says, um, a blessed children in the world and a blessed adult survivors of child abuse. And everybody have a wonderful evening. And uh, we're on tomorrow night and we're on... Uh, every Monday through Friday night, same time. And uh, we hope that you can join us or what, listen to some of the other shows that are archived. Um, if you keep listening long enough, you'll find that in bits and pieces, you will hear your story. And let's look at our commonalities rather than our differences. Thank you, everybody, and uh, have a good night. Thank you. Thank you. Thank, thank you very much. Okay, bye now. <laughs>